Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. I'm your co-host, Justin Bullock. And I'm Gregory Gauz. And today we have with us one of our favorite guests, I think, uh, who's been with us now, what, maybe, this is maybe your third visit with us. Yeah. Welcome back. I think he holds the record. And who, and who are you? Hi, I'm Raymond Robertson. I'm an economist (laughs) and director of the Moss Packer Institute at the Bush School. And thank you so much for being with us again, Raymond. It's a pleasure being with you guys. Yeah, it's always a nice time. And we have to thank our friends. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Court. In historic downtown Bryan. Historic downtown Bryan. Very good. I keep getting it. Very good for for opening up their facility to us and hundreds of people who come to the live broadcast. Yeah, we should should make sure we share some photos of the hundreds of people here with us. At some point. At some point. We do have a couple guests uh, with us, so thank you so much for being here. We're hoping maybe you have some questions at the end as we move forward. So um, thanks to the audience for being here. Among the hundreds. Among the hundreds in the audience that uh, are not all piled into downtown court. That would be a fire hazard. We don't want to cause any trouble. So um, we have Raymond with us. Um, Thanks for joining us. Um, and we want to talk about some Mossbacker things and check in with you about how the Institute's doing and what kind of uh, new projects that you have going on. I was able to attend one of the meetings of some of the new lab that Mossbacker's launching, which also ties in with uh, one of our um, separate series that we're going to do this, uh, this semester uh, that we'll be updating you more on in the near future. But before we get to that... There are lots of political things going on. Maybe a few hot takes. Maybe a few hot takes would be nice. Greg and I like to share our opinions, so I feel like now's a good time to do that. And we have Raymond with us, who might also have some insight. I at least heard one good joke he's made. He's, from the, gonna... he's from the upper Midwest. Is that? Yes, but is he from? That's not really it. Iowa. I guess well, it's, it's not close. From Iowa, but it's close. Don't accuse him of such a thing. And it'd be like accusing him of being from uh, another state that can't count. Yeah. Oh, but I'm not so, going to steal the joke. So yeah, I mean, uh, we are we are twenty uh, some hours since the end of the Iowa caucuses, and we're just getting results. It was a debacle. It was a disaster. If you're a Democrat, it's a very very bad omen for the beginning of the electoral campaign. And well, I President think President Trump did not hesitate to point that out. Yeah, it seems like uh, that would be that would be his move. I think uh, you know, roles reversed. That would be a, a good move from an opposing team. So, did you see any of the results that got posted in the last hour? Or so? I I didn't, but a couple of my students informed me at the end of class that something like maybe sixty percent was reporting, and right. that Pete Buttigieg was leading with twenty six delegates, maybe, and then Bernie Sanders in a. And a close, close second at like 25 or 24 or something like that. Is that your read? Yep. And, uh, and, and uh, Vice President Biden way down the list. So is, his, is he coming in at third? be fourth. Behind? Behind Elizabeth Warren. Okay. Uh, and, and so not a good start for the Vice President. For, and uh, we will see. Well, I, you know, there's some of the commentary that... That uh, so we should talk about the apps because technology the apps, is in this, my is, this is you, right? but this, before, is, this is your. Uh... <laughs> so here's here's my question about Iowa. Does it matter anymore in the news cycle? Do we care about Iowa? We used to really care. Used to predict things. Do we? Should we even care about Iowa? I don't think I don't think Iowa is. I mean, going forward, I'm not sure Iowa is going to have even the same kind of role that it has now after. This debacle, after the 2016 debacle in Iowa, 
uh, in the in the caucuses on the Republican side, yeah. where they didn't have the right count. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I, I think that, you know, Iowa is, unless it can get its act together, I think Iowa is, is basically showing itself unfit to be the first major contest in the primary system. And uh, I think the caucus system is weird anyway. Uh, but I, you know, I don't know going forward, but I, 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 Iowa has is, is covered itself not in glory but in mud. And, and I, I'm, I'm really not sure where things go. The other, the other thing, though, is how important is Iowa? Right? Uh, I forget who won the Iowa caucuses in 2016 on the Republican side. I think it was Senator Cruz. Think. I'm not sure. Any insights around the table? Uh, think, Anybody recall? I, I think it was Senator Cruz. It wasn't President Trump. Uh, yeah. And uh, Bernie Sanders didn't win the Iowa caucuses in 2016 on the Democratic side, but then he went on and swept the New Hampshire primary. And and so I think that what we're going to see is you know this cluster of four, right? Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. Those lead into Super Tuesday. And look, if, if you've got Buttigieg coming out as the, the top vote getter in Iowa, Sanders winning probably in New Hampshire, Nevada, I don't know, up for grabs. And, and if Biden doesn't win South Carolina, that's a huge setback. But if that, if, if that happens, Buttigieg, Sanders, who knows in Nevada? Could be Warren, could be Sanders, right? Could be Biden. Mm -hmm. And then Biden in South Carolina, it seems to me it's a wash going into Super Tuesday. And then you have to ask yourself, what happens to Mike Bloomberg? I mean, does, does Michael Bloomberg spending, I think he's going to spend $100 million on television ads in the lead up to Super Tuesday. I mean, we, we know he spent $6 million on one ad in the Super Bowl. Does Bloomberg, is Bloomberg able to make a dent in Super Tuesday? Well, at least following all of the ads are also, uh, for us millennials, I, I don't know what this television thing is you speak of. There was oh, like a yeah, big party yeah, or something. Yeah. But, I think uh, it's streamed on the internet, too, <laughs> just, you know, in case you, in case you uh, missed it. But what you do see is... There was, uh, there was a big football game. There was a big football game. But one of the, I mean, you also see Bloomberg's ads uh, on Facebook. He's uh, he's marketed aggressively on Facebook, and you know, if you followed the polls, it does seem that there's been a payoff to all this money that's been spent um, to kind of get his name out there. I think in the national polls, he is polling kind of uh, ahead of Buttigieg uh, in some polls, and uh, tied kind of with Warren at that kind of third spot. So it seems kind of the the dumping of dollars into the campaign has has paid off, uh, of at course. least in leading up. Of course. And uh, it'll be interesting to see Super Tuesday. It might, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the narrative coalesces around any candidate after it seems like maybe leading up to Super Tuesday will be a wash. Uh, well, not, I mean, not if those four contests leading into Super Tuesday are all won by different people. Mm -hmm. What's your take, Raymond? Have you been following along? Not too much. I know that uh, I think Iowa had an offer for some help from uh, Florida to count the votes. That was what I heard. But other than that, I haven't followed it too closely. So, and, and here's your here's your trivia. Since, okay. since uh, Mayor Mayor Pete apparently won 
the Iowa caucuses. We should, we should understand people have trouble with his name. And he's, he's Maltese. His people are from Malta. Mm -hmm. And Malta it was uh, uh, conquered by the Arabs and, and ruled by the Arabs for hundreds of years. And the Maltese language has enormous amounts of Arabic in it. So Buttigieg is actually from the Arabic, Abu Dajaj, which means the father of the chicken. No, I swear, I swear to you, great. I swear to you, <laughs> this is not, I am not joking. His people were chicken farmers back in Malta. That's awesome. And that's where Boudijaj comes from. That's really great. Well, you know, there's all kinds of interesting things with the with the namings. Um, well, the other the other interesting one is actually the president, right? I mean, there was some. You know, I think it was John Oliver covered this that his family name was Drumpf. Yeah. Until they uh, until they came until, to America. Until they came to America. You know, when you come to America, you're allowed to change your name. I think that's fair. Sometimes you don't get to pick it, as uh, as my wife found out when when uh, she became an American citizen, she was not allowed to pick her last name. It was just given to her, which is kind of interesting. Well, we can talk about that perhaps when we talk about the borders. Yeah. So before we move on, one of the things that fits in uh, uh, not having the Arab background, so uh, uh, Arabic background like Greg here, one of the things about this uh, particular piece of story is that the Democratic Party is blaming this on an app. And so here we have yet another example of trying to adopt technology in a voting sphere and it not being tested, not being tested well. Same thing we have with a lot of our algorithms that are out there. We just kind of turn them loose, and we're reaping some of the consequences of not bothering to test and retest and check out our technology before we unleash it on the population. And it'll be, you know, I think there was a, it wasn't the Florida story, but it was... Yeah, that uh, wasn't technology. <laughs> it wasn't technology. It was some other problems Florida has. But there was another state that today announced that they had that same technology and that they're no longer going to use it for the primary. So there's already some fallout from this app that uh, seems to have some bugs in it. We're all going back to paper. It seems maybe better, um, all things considered. Okay. All right. Any other hot takes you have? I don't know. I just wonder how, uh, when Putin is being briefed on, on what happened in Iowa, what, what people are going to say, you know, what his people are going to say. If he says, oh, was that us? You know, we, are they going to take credit for it? Or, 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 or are they going to, you know, I... I It'll be interesting. I, I wish I were a fly on the wall in the Kremlin. For lots of reasons. Not just this one. So, Raymond, since we last spoke last, 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 doing well with the English this evening already. So give us an update on things Mossbacker. Mossbacker is one of our institutes that we're quite proud of, and we appreciate you taking the time yet again to come join us. So I, uh, I think last uh, early last fall was the last time we spoke. So what have we missed uh, going on in the Mossbacker world? Well, i got to tell you, thank you so much for having me out. It's great to be uh, out here with two of the smartest guys from the uh, Bush School, two of the smartest professors. And, and you guys me. are doing such a great job with the uh, – <laughs> well, there's other, you know, more in the audience yeah. here. We're referring to any two. Um, but, uh, no, it's been, really, it's been really exciting to see the success of this podcast and see you guys doing so well, and I'm just honored to be here. Uh, but Mossbacker has been doing a really uh, a great job lately. We've been really excited about all the stuff we have going on. i got to tell you, uh, this week uh, we're going to have the uh, British Minister of Trade is coming in for a noontime talk on, on Thursday and followed up by one of the preeminent development economists, Danny Roderick, will be here 
uh, for dinner uh, for an evening event on Thursday. So it's going to be a very exciting week for us. We have a number of initiatives. We're looking at grants. We're having events. We actually had a great event uh, a couple weeks ago. We signed a memorandum of understanding with the Organization of American States. And we had their technical officer on migration come and visit us. And she was here. And Justin actually was at that event. So we're excited to see him there and taking part. What did you think? Did you have a good time there? Yeah. So I was able to attend the talk and the uh, evening discussion the night before, um, which was really cool to see. I mean, Raymond's mentioned this, but the variety of players they've been able to bring to the lab uh, from all their different kind of disciplinary backgrounds, different types of questions. It was really cool. So this is outside of my area of expertise. But as we mentioned in the last podcast, something that I've been trying to develop a better understanding for because we're going to have a uh, a series, uh, kind of a mini-series on borders and migration. And um, it was interesting to see all the different folks and their the, the viewpoints they brought to the, their research. And then, yeah, I got to attend the event. And so this was really cool for me because in kind of the American dialogue, kind of the political dialogue, it's hard, it's been hard for me often to make heads or tails of both what the, what's going on from a legal standpoint and how much of its rhetoric. And so the guest uh, that, that uh, Mossbacker was hosting kind of laid out some of the international law and then, then the law in the American states, uh, and particularly with related to migration, but also towards asylum seekers. And what is the actual kind of law under the United Nations? What's the law across the Southern uh, Southern Americas? And then what is the U.S. law to kind of give people a, a picture of that? And then also looked at kind of migration flows over time and how the current um, crisis, if you will, um, fits in with uh, previous waves of migration. And so... It was it was a lot of fun. It was it was in the room was standing room only essentially. Um, I had to stand That's up right. against the wall as I entered because there wasn't a lot of room. Sure. And there was a lot of good quality questions, but yeah, it was it was interesting to me to kind of learn what the legal obligations, both internationally from the UN but also from the US's own code, uh, is towards asylum seekers in particular as one piece of this migration and borders lab. Um, so yeah, I was. Super excited to be there and just kind of be in the room and hear it. And it was also the uh, the kind of welcoming event for the Migration and Borders to see having some people uh, networking in with the law school, sociology, um, public policy, architecture, um, architecture yeah. uh, kind of thinking history. about history, all yeah. the different lenses sociology. in sociology. Yeah. yeah, all the different lenses that you can come to thinking about um, migration and borders because, you know, I think in the current, again, in the current dialogue of people just kind of watching the news, this sort of gets pigeonholed just thinking about um, what's going on in the U.S.-Texas border, excuse me, U.S.-Mexico border, Texas-Mexico border. Yeah, I, I, I think the U.S.-Texas border, that was more, that was settled back in 1846. Uh, it so. depends on... Not for everyone. Yeah, not for not everyone. For everyone but, uh, you know, for, for lots of folks. So yeah, it was really neat to be uh, be at the talk and hear some of the, you know, just the general lay of how migration patterns have changed over time, how asylum seeking has changed over time, uh, the approaches the American states have taken towards this, what are some of the general uh, accepted norms and then the way in which the U.S. is following some of these norms and, and some of the norms, you know, we're making some changes to. Well, yeah, and there's a real call and a real need for more research on migration. I mean, people are so worked up over migration. It's been such a hot topic in the political arena. You all have touched on that a little bit. 
But most people don't understand a lot of the current, what we call stylized facts about migration. I mean, for example, uh, most people aren't aware that the net migration flows between the United States and Mexico are now negative in the sense that there are more people going to Mexico than are coming into the United States. And so this return migration is something that we're planning on studying a lot more of. What are the causes? What are the drivers of that? What are the implications of that, right? So if we think that migration has certain either positive or negative economic effects, does emigration going the other way uh, have the opposite effects, right? And, and that's why, why that do people fixing. think that the, that the migration, the flow is reversed, and so you get a net out-migration back to Mexico? Is that is that the politics in the United States? Is that the consequences of economic downturn because the economy seems to be perking along these days? What, 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 why are we still getting net out-migration? You can understand that in 2009 or 2010, right, as a response to the economic crisis, but why now? Sure, and that's a, that's a great question, and actually the meeting I just came out of before I came to visit y'all was with uh, a lawyer and a sociologist, and we were debating that and trying to figure out uh, what those causes are because we're putting in a grant to answer that very question. Excellent. We think it's very uh, important to answer that question, but also unknown. The leading hypotheses are, as you would imagine, as, uh, as you said, the economic conditions in the United States. So immigration from Mexico peaked in around the time of the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, 2010. And since then, it's been declining. Part of that might be a change in the economic conditions but with the falling U.S. unemployment rate, it's not really clear that right. that would be going in the same you, direction. You would assume that there would be demand for labor. Exactly. That's exactly it. There's a huge labor shortage now. Why aren't people staying here or coming here to take those jobs? And they're not. Another reason might be potential demographic changes in Mexico itself. So that Mexico had a demographic bubble, as we call it, where they had a lot of people entering the workforce. As those people are kind of aging out now, uh, there's more labor market opportunities within Mexico. Okay. Mexico has been developing. Most people don't realize that Mexico has actually been increasing its GDP per capita, not as fast as maybe we would expect or Mexicans would like, but it's been going up significantly, and that creates opportunity within Mexico. The very reason why we had this North American free trade agreement at the time when I was studying this way back in the day, because I'm old, uh, but I'll tell you this was one of You're the You're not reasons. as old as Greg, though, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> he looks younger, though. He looks younger. You can't tell on the podcast, but he looks so much younger. It's unfair. Uh, Even our, your voice our, is younger. Our Don't listen, kidding. Our, our listeners should know <laughs> Professor Robertson is old. I am. I what am is that, but what does that make you, then, Greg? Older. Okay. okay. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I was studying NAFTA before NAFTA was cool, and then before it was hated. Um, and uh, but, but one of the reasons given then was if we create opportunities in Mexico, we won't have as much migration, and that's very much a realistic explanation for why we don't have as much. There's others, though. What we've also seen is a spike in border enforcement. The Obama administration was very proactive in deportations. The Trump administration has had rhetoric that's been very anti-immigrant from the very beginning. We've also seen a spike in regulations at the local, county, and state levels that are potentially anti-immigrant, and that could also be pushing migrants out. So there's a number of different hypotheses, and we're going to be exploring those in our future research. And one of the, uh, as I remember from the kind of meet and greet with the migrations, uh, Migration Borders Lab, one of the lawyers at the Fort Worth uh, campus 
was looking at the impacts of deputizing essentially local law enforcement to enforce immigration law, which I was not something I had thought about, but super interesting. Yeah, Huyen, uh, up at the Texas A&M Law School in Fort Worth, has actually been working since 2005 to put together a very unique and important database of all of the state, local, county uh, regulations and those types of actions against migrants. So she has this amazing database uh, that really generates, she's used it to generate an index of sort of uh, migrant favorability or hostility or whatever, the, the legal conditions that migrants face in this country. And so that's where that's coming from. And we've seen that that's also been uh, potentially playing a role. Didn't, isn't that what Joe Arpaio tried to do in Arizona? Arizona's a remarkably anti-immigrant <laughs> Use local law enforcement yeah. to enforce his interpretation of federal law on immigration. Yeah, I mean, so it's it, it not seems, just the federal what, 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 did, what did these lawyers say about that? Yeah, that's right. And that's part of the concern is that you have this very strong anti-immigrant push that generates these types of local policies. Uh, it's funny, I was actually in Arizona, and I was with, I have a relative who lives there, my aunt lives there. And I was asking her, why are people in Arizona so anti-immigrant? Have you ever kind of wondered about that? Why? I don't know. I haven't spent enough time in Arizona to tell. I got to tell you, it was great to be there and ask her. And she said, you know, people don't understand that there's a huge portion of the uh, Arizona population that's Native American, like huge swaths. They're anti-all immigrants. (laughs) Everybody's an immigrant to them. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the big problem. They don't want any more people coming in, regardless from Mexico or anywhere else. You know, understandably, in that sense. Uh, But no, it does call back this. This local and uh, county and state regulations have been really potentially affected and affecting how immigrants view whether or not they're welcome. So I. I like this. Uh, I'm glad that some research is looking into sort of the reasons. So one, the impacts of immigration back into uh, a country like Mexico, people coming from the U.S. back to Mexico. Emily Sellers, who used to be with us at the Bush School, looked into um, some research of what the push, are the... The push and pull factors yeah. of migration from Mexico. So what the are the United impacts States. in when, when there was more outgration, what were some of the impacts? What are the impacts to countries that have the net kind of uh, out migration, brain drain, and other things. But I liked—I hadn't thought about this, but as as you guys know, and maybe the listeners have heard me say, my my wife's a Mexican immigrant, and she's had uh, family at different points um, migrate to the U.S. And now, with the youngest generation, some of them are migrating back. And it's—I've watched some of this play out firsthand, where. Uh, uh, some of her family was able to find a job in the U.S., and the job was actually in kind of a, a big department store uh, service center, but doing the stocking and packing and working long hours and working um, shifts on weekends and nights and undesirable shifts. And this particular family member found better opportunities in the economy in Mexico, taken as a whole, both being back in a culture that she was more comfortable with and the uh, economic opportunities that it was more desirable, given the gap uh, between the opportunities in the U.S. and Mexico had had uh, minimized to such a degree that being back in her hometown was more uh, desirable than remaining in Texas. Yeah, people don't. When I was living in Mexico, I, I, I had this uh, some friends that you know the dad was leaving to go to the United States. And people don't appreciate the human toll. I mean, that migration is not an easy decision. It's not like people are just coming here willy-nilly. I mean, 
you know, you leave your family, you leave your kids. It's, it's brutal. The kids were crying, and it was just hard. They never know if they're going to see them again. People die in the desert or they die in the crossing. So this migration is incredibly difficult. And so if you do have that opportunity, you know, wouldn't it be better to stay in Mexico if you're from Mexico? I mean, I had other friends, so I asked them, you know, when they was, I was hosting them in the United States, I was like, isn't this a great country? Isn't this the best place in the world to live? And they're like, you know, you got lots of money and you got lots of opportunity, but it's just not home. It's not home. You know, mm -hmm. and, and George Borjas, who's a famous Mexican, or a Cuban, he's a famous Cuban um, descendant, uh, but he's an economist who does research on immigration. And he said, you know, one of the greatest puzzles about migration is not why do people migrate, it's why do people not migrate? Like, look at Puerto Rico, for example, right? I mean, there's yeah. free immigration or migration between Puerto Rico and the mainland, and the wages are way higher in the United States. And why is anybody still in Puerto Rico? And, of course, I told them, you ever been to Puerto Rico? the earthquakes and the earthquakes and the lack yeah. of power and current conditions. I mean, historically, it's a, it's a, place. It's a yeah. fantastically beautiful place. I mean, if you have to you know, decide where to live, I mean, College Station I mean, is beautiful, Spanish, but Puerto Rico. The Spanish you know, call it awesome rich port. Yeah, yeah, Puerto Rico, right? Puerto Rico, exactly. I have to say, it's it's really pleasant to hear an economist talking about a sense of place and a sense of community and not just uh, dollars and dimes. I'm really proud of you, Raymond. Well, yeah, I mean, well. works at a policy school. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's an endogenous decision. If you were I mean, still in a department of economics, you wouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> no, I, and I did, and that's why I'm here now. That's why you're in the policy. Uh, no, 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 but, but actually, to be fair, I mean, a lot of the current research uh, in economics on migration decisions mainly between industries and between states, not across countries yet, uh, but they, they actually look at adjustment costs in two ways. There's sort of firms can hire and fire, and that's sort of a cost to firms. But if you look at workers and you try and estimate the cost that they have just to switch jobs or to switch states, mm -hmm. some of these estimates run as high as seven times annual income. People wow. don't like to move. It's actually really difficult to leave where you've been established, where you're friends or whatever. Those costs are tremendous. I mean, the real question is not why people migrate. What? Borjas was right. It's why do people not why? move? Why doesn't everyone in Pennsylvania move to Texas? Exactly. Well, because right. it's better exactly. here. So they should. Life is better here. You'd think. There's all sorts of places yeah. in you know central Pennsylvania where you just wonder why yeah. they just don't form... You know, like or Detroit, migrant caravans Detroit. and come to Texas. Yeah. And people move, but on the margins. I mean, yeah, I mean, think of your high school friends. I mean, Justin, you and I have had this discussion. How many of your high school friends are still in their hometown? Overwhelming right? majority, yeah. The, the vast majority of them. Same with mine. I mean, mm -hmm. People generally don't move as much as you would expect, given the difference in wages and opportunities. Right. And this is actually, you know, going into the trade part of what Mosspacker does. We also are focusing on trade. But there's been a lot of research on the effects of uh, China and the imports and the adverse effects that that's had on, on wages. And these local communities get hit when the plant closes or you know the plant shuts down. People don't leave that town. And so these effects of trade on these specific localities persist over long periods of time because people don't do the migration that is needed to spread out and dissipate those shocks. And the people who do leave are probably the ones that you don't want to leave. They're well, exactly. The, the those with the most opportunities. The smartest, so the people with the, the PhDs educated. are the most mobile nationally. Right. And the people you know with the least education are the least mobile generally. And, and so it creates these big disparities and creates real hardship for these towns. So instead of you know thinking about you know how do we fix trade, I mean, you and I have had this discussion, actually. 
is wouldn't it be better to try and help those people in those towns? I mean, try to meet them where they're at instead of trying to change trade policy. I mean, yeah. these people are needing help. Let's help them on the ground. Yeah, particularly when the cost, as you mentioned, are seven times the salary. I mean, you, yes. could, you could really so decrease what, the so cost saying, by helping so them. So what learn. you're saying is that for people to kind of up and move within their own country, yeah, just to another state, another region, they have to they have to get seven times yeah the amount of salary that they would make on average wow. on average so I mean obviously you and I moved out of our state to move into somewhere else for less than seven times yeah like I didn't get seven times no I didn't get seven but times but you either. got a big increase I got I got a nice but we're the, nice and we're the but we're the marginal workers so on average what you can see is these these wage Hold differences on. did you just say we're the marginal workers yes. On the, in the sense that we're the mobile ones. We're the ones that made oh, the decision I, I to see. move. You know what I'm I saying? You're talking we're not marginalized. We're not marginal. We're on the margin. The poor side. people. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. But we're the ones who made the decision to yes. move. Yes. There's a, for every one of us, there's 25 people that don't move. Yes. You know what I'm saying? That's yes. what I'm saying. So that's what I mean by marginal. But these wage gaps are tremendous across the country, and people don't really move. Yeah, I have a, another just anecdotal example. I. I had family that when was... When you get enough anecdotes together, it becomes It data. becomes That's a narrative, a, <laughs> and then it's data. Then it's a fact. Right? But uh, yeah. where I'm from in northwest rural Georgia, it doesn't have the same types of economic opportunities as yeah. other parts of the country. Yeah. And one of my... Other parts of Georgia. Other parts of Georgia, yeah. And one of my um, brothers was looking, was, was in kind of a tough spot and looking to move and, and restart. And so... Actually, with the same skill set from uh, from where they were in the community they were working to the new community they're in in a different state is uh, almost three times what they were making yeah. as a household. Yeah. And still, it required real amounts of resources, to your point, to enable the move from from rural Georgia to their new community. Yeah, even even when they got there, their household income being triple what it was before. Yeah. Now, now that they've gotten there, happy, and, and it's worked out really well for them, but they, on their own, weren't in a financial situation to go from where they were to their new spot, even yeah. when the new spot made sense from a financial standpoint, made sense even from a from an environment standpoint and from a daily yeah. life standpoint, the costs that you mentioned, as you mentioned, are really are really high to moving. Well, and actually, that's another interesting fact about migration from developing countries to developed countries. Is it's not the poorest people who move. The poorest people can't afford to move. Can't so it's actually those. the people who are kind of just above the poorest who have some some plata, right, some money to, that allows them to move. And so it's another of these potential explanations, as you were asking before, Greg, about why do people move back? Now they have the money. They can afford to, <laughs> they can move, afford back. to move back. You know yeah. what I'm saying? That's what they'd like to do. And now they've actually earned enough and they can make that move back. So, so um, on the note of trade and moving on from borders of migration as one part of what Mossback is doing, um, we are... Uh, there was some updates on a trade deal between China and the U.S. Uh, not too long ago that I don't think we've gotten to talk about. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that to the extent that you've been able to, uh, to unlike Greg, I won't put you on the spot, uh, but if that's something that um, you have some insight into that would be good for the listeners, it'd be, it'd be great to talk about that. And then also, as we're recording this on February 4th, um, there's uh, some uh, things going on internationally that's uh, diminishing trade. In particular, there's the coronavirus crisis really in China right now that has shut down travel to China and is um, um, putting a 
a damper on trade, we might say. And so we want to talk a little bit about that. But let's start with what is your sense of kind of what's going on with the U.S. and China trade relationships since last time we spoke? Well, you know, I would hate to suddenly zag when you were trying to zig over there on your conversation. But I also think it's important to mention that on the 29th of January, barely just last week, uh, we, we the president signed the USMCA, so the you know, U.S.-Mexico-Canada mm. agreement. Yeah. And I think that's also a big development in trade. So we should just throw that well, into yeah. the mix. But we had you talking about that before. We've covered we've covered USMCA, <laughs> and I'm sure every all of your listeners are like, you know, she talked about that last yeah. time. I don't want to hear about that again. So what what happened um, then? Is it now it's in effect? What what's changed since last time we spoke? Right, right, right. So now it's uh, so last December, so the House and the Senate actually for the USMCA had uh, both uh, proposed legislation. They both got passed in December, and it was signed bipartisan uh, votes. Well, actually, the the result the the votes were overwhelming. I mean, it was like 80, 80 to fourteen in the Senate. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. really overwhelming. Yeah. It was actually had the most uh, bipartisan support of any agreement over the last ten. The the overall. Um, support among the Democrats had been about 34%, and here it was much almost double that. It was much higher support among the Democrats for the USMCA, and no other agreement. You're talking about last... Democratic votes in the Senate and the House. Yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. Had been about 36% in favor, and now it was much more. I mean, it's closer, you know. Among the presidential candidates, I think Sanders voted no. Sanders, yeah, no. I think Warren voted yes, didn't she? Well, I'm pretty sure know. she voted yes on, U- on USMCA. Uh, I don't know how Warren voted in particular, so Greg's looking it up, so we'll be able to check. But the the Democrats... Lobachar definitely voted yes. Yeah, she was actually... Uh, I mean, if you're on the northern border... Minnesota is not... Uh, yeah, Minnesota actually is very pro in a very pro-trade situation. Uh, but it had a lot of bipartisan support, and so now we expect that that's going to be going through. That should actually protect the status quo of this free trade with Mexico that we talked about how important trade is. It's really critical. It's a victory for uh, President Trump, which is great. But also the Democrats of the Congress are claiming victory because they got to push through a whole bunch of amendments that they really like. So it's one of these great, rare examples of a bipartisan victory where everyone is saying that this is a win. And I think here in Texas, we know that this is absolutely critical uh, for the state. You know, I mean, Mexico is Texas's number one trading partner. Texas is the number one exporting state in the United States. Uh, with billions of dollars of trade with Mexico in particular, and, and automobiles are actually fourth on the list of things that we trade with Mexico. So you have petroleum, you have computers, uh, electronics, and chemicals uh, rank above that. So, you know, it, it's incredibly important just to maintain the status quo. Not that the USMCA is that much different uh, than NAFTA. I mean, some people, when I was down in El Paso, people were saying this is no different at all. Uh, and most of the text, you know, like 60-some percent of the text is actually identical either mm-hmm. to the uh, NAFTA or the, the TPP. So, 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 uh, so Warren Senator voted, Warren did vote in favor yeah, sure. of, of yeah. USMCA. The, the votes against USMCA were very much concentrated in New England. Yeah, Pennsylvania, I'm sure. Uh, no, uh, Pat Toomey voted against uh, USMCA, but from a free trade. He said, "This is this is too restrictive of trade." Yeah, uh, and but the people who voted against were uh, Schumer, Gillibrand, Booker, Markey, Jack Reed, and Sheldon Whitehouse, all from New York and New England. Yeah, uh, Senator Schatz from Hawaii voted no. Bernie Sanders voted no, and uh, Kamala Harris voted no. Yeah, not very many. Well, and Bernie Sanders. Yeah. 
I'm glad that uh, given the conversations we've had with Raymond, elaborating on the benefits of free trade, I wouldn't have thought that 80 senators could have agreed that the world was round, much less that well, free trade was good. So I don't it's, know if it's really nice. <laughs> you asked me about China, right? I mean, we could talk about China, but I mean, the, we could also talk about the, the labor provisions in the USMCA were very different. I mean, it, it was a very different kind of amendments that made the Democrats very happy. So, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about that. If you want sure, to talk about yeah, I, yeah. What is uh, uh, the Democrats actually? This is actually I was on the phone with uh, a friend of mine who's a lawyer, who's going to be starting at uh, Cornell University's law school uh, this fall. But she says, you know, one of the things about this that's different than all other agreements was it had these incredible externalities that it required changes in Mexican law, and so Mexico has been changing its labor law, especially with regards to unionization and protection of union votes. Uh, that's usually outside the scope of an agreement, and and so that makes that's what makes this very different. And Democrats and and President of the AFL CIO uh, Richard Trumka have been really trying to push these types of changes for a long time. And and Lighthouser, you know, uh, the USTR Lighthouser was also very in favor of pushing these labor reforms through. So it was a very pro labor kind of agreement. With so so we can so we can do that with place. Mexico because Mexico is weak. And desperately needs us. We can't do that kind of thing with China. Uh, labor issues in the make, China trade deal were not even on the table. So we cannot yeah. make the Chinese change their laws. That that's not even not even close. And the the China deal was actually a lot more marginal than uh, you would think because basically the agreement was okay. We said we we're going to impose these tariffs, and now we're not. <laughs> so the rate of increase in tariffs is going to be smaller. Right. Uh, and, you know, that's progress. I mean, that's great. And we're able to work on some of those differences. But the tariffs are still, you know, 10 times higher at least than what they were without the trade war. Uh, and so we're... 10 times higher. Oh, well, yeah. Before our tariffs, you know, 2, 3, 4%. And now they're like 34%. You know what I'm saying? So they're, they're much higher in many, in many areas. So can we do this under uh, WTO? Well, Trump has actually found amazing ways to do that by calling them national security, security tariffs, which is yeah. something that was put uh, forward by law in the 50s and 60s or right. whatever that was. Right. And he just pulled that out. It might have been earlier. I don't remember the exact date. Well, yeah, I mean, with the Canadians, I understand that because they are a security threat. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. keep me up at night. So anyway, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're hoping for more progress on China, but I think it's very obvious that this coronavirus is going to have a lot bigger effect than the trade war, and both of those are going to have a bigger effect than the marginal change in the USMCA. I mean, so I, I think this coronavirus is potentially really, really serious, obviously because of the loss of life, and people are dying, and our hearts go out to those families, and we should be praying for them. Not that many people are dying. One right, death, death is more death than rate, the, mean, de the death rate on coronavirus is much less than on SARS, right? But the number infected much, is now more than SARS, though. Right, but the death rate is the death rate on SARS was up to ten percent, right? And the death rate, at least so far, on the on the new coronavirus is it's like two percent. Right? I would think I would think this was something two good Catholics could agree upon. Loss of life is bad. Yeah, but we're talking public policy here. I mean, well, it's relative. I mean, you know, uh, right? <laughs> a single death is a tragedy, and a, and a, and a million deaths is a statistic. Mm -hmm. and that, you know, just because Stalin said it doesn't mean it's not true. But if we're gonna if if we're gonna get really afraid of coronavirus because it's gonna kill us all, right? We should we should really kind of look at the facts. Sure. And and how many more people in America have died from the flu, mm -hmm. right? In the past 
six months than from the it's like twenty five thousand or something oh, according it, to the talk today. It's yeah. huge. But it does it does also still impact the Chinese economy right. and its so, trade with So, so let's so let's get away from, you know, how many people are gonna die and let's talk about how it's gonna affect global trade. Right. I was just saying our hearts go out to those families, but there is gonna be a very significant effect on trade. Uh, to the extent that we saw Hyundai made an announcement where they're shutting down a lot of their uh, production in Korea because they can't get their uh, supply chain going from China. They're worried about the supply chain. Uh, and, and so many American companies have their supply chains deeply linked into China, whether it's clothing or electronics or cars or, or medicine, too, or medicine it turns or out. Or iPhones yeah. or really? medicine. Yeah, medicine? medicines. No, we import tons of medicine yeah, from, in China? China. from China. Yeah. That's right. That's right. At the talk today, yes. uh, Scowcroft had that something like uh, 80% of basic ingredients medicine. of medicines come not only from China, but from the uh, Wuhan uh, district. Uh, from the province, yeah. Yeah. Which I also did not know. So Although, what do I, should I throw my Tylenol PMs no, away? No, because I mean, the, what, the, the leading health the officials are, the, corona, the coronavirus apparently, what I heard was, the coronavirus has a shelf, like like a table light, like it, it lives on yeah. tables and services for a couple hours. I mean, right. so it's there, it's a health threat because it stays around, it doesn't just dissipate, but it can't survive a, yeah, you should wipe down the table <laughs> I just touched. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The audience should know Greg is wiping out the trip. No, it's China. China. Okay. I mean, okay. It's not going to survive months, you know okay. what I mean, without a host. So right. it's, it's, it's just when the, the person in the grocery store sneezes on it. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure okay. you've seen Outbreak, right? Everyone's seen Outbreak. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Terrifying. So we don't have an Outbreak. Uh, not in the U.S. Pandemic. Right, I mean, right. It's, on, it's appearing. Okay, so oil prices down $10 a barrel yeah. since the... Roughly since the, the, the outbreak of the, of the coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, Chinese stock market crashing. Down, crashing. Right. In, in absolute correction mode. That's right. Right. Like, like it's down yeah. 10%, 15%, yeah. something like that. Our own stock market, you know, not in the same, not in the same area, four, right? but, three but, but three to four. Yeah. Uh, so when we talk about these uh, global uh, uh, supply chains, are we talking about days, weeks, or months of the ripple effect? Yeah, that's a great question because there's so much variation. I mean, a lot from of China, from China, but it's going to be weeks. I mean, if you think a lot, if you really were worried about just in time, week, day to yeah. day, kind yeah. of, you're not sourcing from China, right? Right. So it's going to be weeks. You could be and sourcing in North America across borders. Exactly. You should be but, sourcing in Mexico for right, things right. that are time sensitive. Right? But but the 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 the, the, the supply chain for for China really is based on, on, on ocean shipping. Yes, that's right. right. So we're talking about at least a couple of weeks, right? At least a couple of weeks. Yeah. But nevertheless, I mean, one of the things when I was down in McAllen, in McAllen, Texas, down there in Reynosa Way. Along is the border? That, yeah, along the border. So they're actually optimistic, first about the trade war, but potentially with the other complications China's having, because uh, this is disrupting supply chains significantly. And the problem with the supply chain decision is that there's a fixed cost involved. So it's not just like, oh, I'm just going to move my production to Mexico for a couple of weeks until China recovers. I mean, there's a huge yeah. fixed cost in realigning your supply chain. And Mexico you can't looks pick attractive. up the factory and move it to South Korea. And then move it back. And then move it back. <laughs> and then move right. it, I mean, you can, but it's just so expensive, right? So there are these huge fixed costs. So that means that these large shocks can induce what economists would call a switching behavior, 
where you actually get engaged in, in making those fixed cost investments. And the border is hoping that this is going to be good for the border. And, and you know, there, there's some conditions, but Bob Shanley and I, who maybe I know you know, you introduced me to him uh, over at uh, the I'm Republic. Sure, I'm sure our viewers are very interested in that, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, our listeners. Well, you know, local commerce, local okay. commerce, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but, but we're doing a project right now looking at what are the conditions and implications necessary for McAllen in particular to capture some of that capture. change in the, the global supply chain. So at what point do you think that, that uh, American companies, you know, pick Adidas or, or Converse, right? Yeah, uh, footwear. Uh, yeah, uh, Nike. Yeah. Converse, like I, you know, it's 1974. Uh, Nike sources in China. Yep. How much disruption would it take for for Nike? I mean, it, it has to be more than a couple of weeks or a month for Nike to pick up its its it kind of say we're changing our supply chains and we're not going to source from China anymore. We're going to source from Vietnam or we're going to source from from northern Mexico. Right. Well, I mean, I'm glad you asked me uh, this question because I actually. Have an answer for you. So, in one of the one of my books that I've done, uh, we actually estimated what's called the elasticity of uh, inner country movements with response to prices. It's actually pretty high when you talk about footwear and clothing. Footwear and clothing are actually a lot easier to move than electronics and cars. Okay. Uh, and so those are pretty footloose. And actually, uh, textile and apparel apparel suppliers in China have already adopted before Corona and before the trade war sort of an ABC policy, which is anywhere but China. So they've already started shifting out of China. And Why? So this is Why before Because before wages in China war. have been rising oh. so significantly. And apparel, so, you mentioned footwear. Yeah, yeah. Apparel and footwear are at the bottom of the wage so The wage ladder. scale, okay. And so once the Chinese, the Chinese wages have actually, in, in 2000, they started below the Mexican wages, and now they're almost double. In the, okay. in the period over the last 20 years. And so the, the wage growth in China has been remarkable, and it's causing uh, what we call, I'm doing another project now with some other folks, including um, this woman at Duke. Uh, yeah, well, you know, whatever, but she's a friend, but we're doing this project. But, it's, <laughs> but she and I are looking at what we're calling the apparel bubble, right? So developing countries tend to go through this a surge in apparel production, which sucks in women to the labor force. Right. And then they move on to other things. They move on to footwear. They move on to electronics. move on to China's actually going through this bubble. They're already on the downside. They're shifting out of it. And and so for those industries, uh, you know. So where are they going? They well, go to Bangladesh, Bangladesh. Uh, Vietnam. So Vietnam, Bangladesh, Cambodia are the big ones. Uh, and then after those countries, we're expecting Africa to kick in. Yeah. So Africa's trying to get uh, in, in linked into the supply chain. Right. So if you haven't titled one of your papers, Footwear is Footloose, yet, yeah. now you have to. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we published those results I was going to make a joke that way, and I ah. said, no, that's really bad. Yeah, no. Footwear is very Footloose, yeah. yeah. No joke is too bad for me, as yeah. you guys know. Yes. <laughs> um. So I think we're getting close to our hour mark. Is there anything from either a Mossbecker perspective or things going on in uh, global supply chain or things going on related to trade that you haven't gotten an opportunity to talk about that you would like to leave our listeners with before we make sure a few people we could take some questions from? Let's get to some questions. That's the most exciting part. I definitely would like to hear what other people are saying more than 
All right. So we don't have hundreds here, but we do have some. Uh, I did say at the top of the show we had hundreds. Well, they there's it's thousands now. Thousands, thousands. No longer hundreds. It's thousands with all the roar of the background noise that you hear okay. cheering us on. Oh, I think that's just in my head. All right, so we do have a few guests. Um, does anyone have any questions for the panel this evening? Don't be shy. So many hands going up. We Hard might not choose. have time. It's we might not choose. have time to take any questions. There's so many. We may have stunned them into silence tonight. It's possible. It's possible. Okay. Well, right. we might have to wrap. Okay, with wrapping, I think we've taken enough of Raymond's time. Yeah. It's always a pleasure to hang out yeah, with you yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. We'll do it again. It's always a pleasure to have you, my friend. Anytime. We will be doing it. What's the next trade agreement going to be? Well, we have this uh, British, we have this British trade the minister, British trade minister coming, coming to the Bush coming School to try to drum up support for the U.S. British for a trade U.S. Agreement. British trade Trump agreement. Trump has been very supportive of that idea. Well, he British. was very supportive of Brexit. That's for sure. <laughs> that's right. And now he wants a bilateral agreement. That's why he doesn't want yes, these he likes, bilateral. He likes bilateral, he likes bilateral agreement. So we're expecting that to be a big deal, and we'll be uh, reviewing that and the talk on Thursday. So I invite your listeners to come if you can get the cast But is that going to be? No, we're not going to have the podcast out in a day, and a, half, a day but, and a half. Uh, but. It's possible, but not typically. Friday is what we shoot for. All right. All right. So, so, I mean, are there any trade agreements in, in the works? Is the South Korean trade deal, is that done? Uh, there... That was done a long time ago, right. and so they're trying to renegotiate that. I, but it hasn't come up to Congress, right? Uh, not the renegotiation. The renegotiation no, the renegotiation okay. has not. The big thing isn't so much the trade agreements; it's the increased use of these anti-dumping duties and countervailing duties. Okay. That uh, you know, Mexico was hit with these aluminum, well, and, the steel aluminum and steel The Canadians. Those went away last May and May and June. They were lifted, right. but Mexico is still being hit by these countervailing duties. So there was just a case on structural steel from Mexico. So if you actually, it's the devil's in these details. It's not in the main tariff schedule. It's in the off tariff schedule. Okay. In the ninety-eight, ninety-nine range of the tariff schedule, where all the action is nowadays. So we're not we're not talking about major whole, agreements. We're not talking about major agreements. We're talking about the prospect of an agreement with Britain. Yes, and that's probably the biggest with deal, Brexit. For, yeah, the Brexit's but, the biggest story. Okay, so that's that's the big thing. Question. Please do. So when you take out the the less skilled workers, right, there might be some increase in wages for those people at the very bottom. But if you look at the United States distribution, there aren't very many of those people that don't have a high school education, right? So the average number of years of education in the United States is about 13. The number of people without a high school education is very small. Uh, so the other side of the coin is that there's huge complementarities, right? So if you remove these low-skilled workers, other people, like closer, if you're a professor at the Bush School, for example, or a lawyer or something. Classic low-skilled wage. Well, now you're going to have to uh, find other ways to get those jobs done, maintenance and roofing and you know gardening or whatever, you know what I mean? And so you're either going to have to pay more in wages for those, which reduces your consumption, 
and you'd have to work more, uh, or you have to do those yourself instead of working, right? So you might actually see a reduction in the wages at the top as a result of the loss of the So jobs. in other words, I'll have to spend less time at the Bush School and more time on my roof. That's right. That's exactly right. With That's not going to happen. It's so <laughs> so the, the specific question... I will pay whatever the wage, the going rate is to get but then you But then you have less money to spend on other stuff. Yeah. True. That's the point, right? True. Then it reduces your consumption overall. Justin's so going to have to start buying his own drinks. Oh, finally. So the, the question was in specific about uh, uh, Mexican immigration and uh, if there's less of it, what does that mean for the, you know, generally the U.S. and the future of the U.S. labor market? Yeah. But I'd like to expand out from that and talk about maybe immigration more generally and say, you know, as if, if we become kind of stricter on immigration in general, what does that mean to the aging workforce of the U.S., right? We're going to become Italy or Japan. I mean, the only reason that, that we are not in this downward demographic spiral like, like Japan or Italy is because of immigration. That, that's absolutely right. And I've also done work with my students at the Bush School where we've estimated the kind of growth in firms between those that have migrants and those that don't have migrants, uh, comparing the same industry in similar states and that sort of thing. And migrants contribute a lot to productivity. I mean, that's a big problem. And if you really start shutting out migrants, you're losing productivity, you're losing, obviously, this complementarity. Uh, so there's, there's some significant costs that we're going to have to wrestle with. Jeb, anyone have any other questions? Thank you for your question. Anyone else? Going once. Going twice. Greg? So I think it's time to thank our friends at Downtown Uncorked and historic Downtown Bryan for once again hosting us. Thank our guests. It's always a pleasure. Professor Robertson. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a week next? off. We yeah, we have a week off. And then I'm we'll be traveling. back on the... You're traveling. I'm traveling as well. And uh, we'll return for a recording on the 18th. Um, so if anyone would like to join us, we have at least one agreed guest for the 18th. Professor of History, Jonathan Coopersmith. Oh, Jonathan Coopersmith. Who right. is also a returning guest. History, um, historian of technology. Yep. Yep. And so I'll get to nerd out on some technology stuff, which will be fun for me. Less international affairs for change. We can be in my wheelhouse. And um, then we have some stuff coming down in March. But yeah, we'll be back in two weeks. And um, then a few, few events coming down the pipe in March. And thanks again, Raymond, for being with us. Always it's a always a pleasure. Thanks, Greg. It's always fun. Thanks to the audience. Thank you for joining us this evening. Hey, oh, round of applause. Look at that. We didn't even bribe them with that. All right. Thank you so much to the listeners as well. Thanks for um, giving us your time and following along this evening.